Hi, it's Jen. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. So please help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help supporting NPR podcasts. Thanks. Hi, this is Karen in Burlington, Vermont, and I'm an Australian citizen who was in Australia when the Port Arthur massacre occurred in Tasmania in 1996. It was so horrific that really change had to happen and new gun restrictions were brought in. And since that time, people don't walk around fearing gun violence. It isn't really there. My kids have been to school both here in America and in Australia and there is a really different feeling for them. They do not necessarily feel safe in schools. I feel like that's something that we should perhaps focus on. There's been a lot of talk about freedom and really I think the ability to move through your day for people of all ages without the fear of being killed at any moment is is freedom. While the U.S. is alone in its sheer number of mass shootings, other countries have also seen mass shootings devastate communities. That 1996 shooting spree in a Tasmanian tourist cafe that Karen described left 35 people dead. It also prompted a major overhaul of Australia's gun laws. After the break, we'll take a closer look at how other developed nations, including Australia, faced mass shootings. We'll also ask what lessons the U.S. could learn from their responses. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Mick North knows the heartbreak of a school shooting all too well. In 1996, a gunman entered a primary school in Dunblane, Scotland, and killed 16 students, including his daughter, Sophie. She was five years old. He's dedicated much of the last 26 years to preventing another mass shooting, and in the United Kingdom, he's largely succeeded. After the Dunblane massacre, Mick helped found the Gun Control Network. That's an organization dedicated to gun safety regulations in the U.K., I spoke with Mick North from his home in the UK, and I started by asking how he reacted to the news that yet another American elementary school was the site of a mass shooting. What I've said um, always after shootings like that, that I remain shocked, but no longer surprised. Events like this just seem to happen far too often in America. After the Dunblane massacre, as it's called, you helped rally support for more gun safety measures in the UK. What were the regulations you wanted? Our immediate concern then was to get a ban on handguns, which was the weapon 
used by the uh, perpetrator. And we achieved that in two stages. Uh, the government who was in power at the time, the Conservatives, uh, only wanted to introduce a partial ban, a ban on high-caliber weapons. Uh, but we wanted to ensure that as many pan guns as possible were prohibited. And when the government was replaced by a Labour government about a year or so after Dunblane, they had committed to um, going the full way and prohibiting the lower calibre weapons as well. Explain a little bit more about the opposition to the regulations you were seeking. We were opposed by people in the uh, UK gun lobby, and I think they were uh, getting advice and support from overseas, including from organisations like the NRA. But they were never as strong a political force uh, as uh, the gun lobby is in America. But at the time, uh, the government had really only listened to those involved with shooting, with interest in shooting, when it came to putting together gun laws. And that was one thing that we really did want to change, that gun laws should not just be for the convenience of those who want to shoot, but they should be there to ensure that the public is as safe as possible. So we had to sort of overturn that way of thinking, and that did take a bit of time. Uh, The Conservative Party were more closely associated with shooting interests than the other political parties, so it was difficult uh, whilst they were still in power. But nevertheless, because the majority of the British public and most of the media wanted the same kind of aims as we did. It was a matter of continuing to persuade, continuing to remind the politicians that there was this strong public feeling to change things. When you, when it comes to, to trying to get politicians to shift their position, were there specific arguments you made beyond public support is in place for these changes? Was, was there something else there? Well, among the things we um, argued was that handguns in Britain were only used for sports shooting. Uh, it was not possible to own them for self-defence. The only place in the United Kingdom where that was possible was in Northern Ireland, and then that was a permission was only very rarely granted. So we argued that these instruments that were used in sport were very dangerous weapons and that really just having them for sports shooting couldn't be justified when um, the perpetrator who carried out Dunblane um, could use them so devastatingly. Uvalde was the deadliest school shooting in the U.S. since 2012. Uh, That's when 20 children and six staff were killed at an elementary school in Newtown, Connecticut. You said... You're no longer surprised when you hear about these stories coming out of the U.S. As someone who's not from this country, why do you think this keeps happening here? I get that asked asked that question so often, yet I find it very difficult to answer. I mean, I I don't see America as an uncaring society, yet in this, it's either uncaring or it just ignores... Uh, the, the the evidence. If you had any other problem that was causing so many deaths, 40,000 or so uh, annually from, from gun violence, 
Politicians will be bending over backwards to find ways to reduce that. But it appears that politicians are, are, are blind to, to, the, to the evidence. This is a major, should be a major crisis in the States. But for some reason, um, th this love affair that some people have with guns seems to, seems to uh, the blind policymakers. You know, the outcry after the Dunblane massacre helped push politicians to enact gun regulations. Here in the U.S., part of the dynamic we see is gun regulation skeptics often say the aftermath of a mass tragedy is not the time for action, but the time for thoughts and, and prayers and reflection. But from your experience, is immediately after a shooting actually the right time to make the push as you did in the U.K.? Unfortunately, it, it is. And to some extent, those of us at Dunblane felt a, an obligation to do something. We knew we were people that the media would listen to. And if we had a message, if we wanted to be the focus of people's support for a change in, in gun policy, we had to, had to speak out. In Britain, after Dunblane, a public inquiry was set up and often governments use public inquiries as a way of uh, kicking the can down the road. But we wanted to make sure that however long it took for the public inquiry to be held and its recommendations to be made, that we wanted to ensure that the issue was kept alive. And we obviously had to do that through talking about personal stories as well as putting forward our policies. And we had to ensure that it kept going. I think it is far too easy, sadly, especially when there are so many such events, for latest one to fade very quickly from the public's mind and nothing nothing be done. So I think there is a lesson you have to act and you have to continue to act. And how are you doing today, Nick? Um I'm 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 doing all right. It's been a long time since I lost Sophie. Uh it doesn't mean that she ever goes away and um when when there are shootings particularly at other schools, it's a stark reminder of, of what happened in Scotland in 1996. I still have um, plenty of reminders of her around the house and that was a very important part of my life. Uh, but other things have happened since. Um, we adjust, we start walking along a different but parallel path perhaps and I'm still walking on that path. Mick, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That was Mick North. His daughter Sophie was one of 16 students killed when a gunman attacked a primary school in Dunblane, Scotland in 1996. Sophie was five years old. Joining us from her home in Guatemala is Rebecca Peters. She helped lead Australia's gun law reforms, and she's the former director of the International Action Network on Small Arms, which works to combat gun violence globally. Also joining us now is Professor Mugambi Jouet. He's a law professor at McGill University in Montreal. He's also the author of Exceptional America, What Divides Americans from the World and from Each Other. Rebecca, just walk us through what happened in Port Arthur. It was um, in April 28th, 1996, a, 
um, at a, a holiday location uh, called Port Arthur in Tasmania. It's a historic site. And it was a long weekend, so there were lots of people there. And a young man with um, a couple of assault weapons went on... Uh, well, he opened fire um, and he, he killed 35 people over the course of... Um, it was basically most of the day in a couple of different locations, but mostly in a very few minutes, most of them were killed in one place. And it was, we had had already uh, in previous years, we used to have about one mass shooting per year in Australia. And each time there was a lot of, of soul searching and media coverage and what to do. And But this uh, shooting was so large uh, it was, at the time, it was the largest tragedy of this type that w had been recorded anywhere. It, as we used to say, even larger than the shootings in the US, because we always use the US as a as a, a benchmark. And and it was and because of other factors, political factors, and where it occurred, basically the the population of Australia said, this is enough, we're not having this anymore. And our Prime Minister, who had just been elected, um, also said, this is enough. And although both major political parties had been very cowardly about changing the gun laws because of the same kind of thing as happens in the US, that the gun lobby had said, whichever party moves to strengthen the gun laws, we will campaign against them in, when it comes to election time. And so both parties had been intimidated but what the Prime Minister was able to do was um, say, we're going to do this in a bipartisan way, and he got both of the parties to agree and, um, and to a, a, basically an 11-point plan called the National Firearms Agreement, and then all the states and territories of Australia changed their laws to uh, meet that new standard. So what, so what does it take it, to buy a gun in Australia now, Rebecca? Well, now it is um, you you have to have a license before you can uh, uh, buy a gun. In fact, you have to have a license to possess or use a gun and to so that if you want to use a gun, even if you don't own it, you have to have a license. And to get that license, it's not just a background check like a criminal background check like in the US, but there's a process of references and of consideration of any other factor that might affect the public interest. So for example, you might be denied a license um, not for, about for anything to do with you personally, but because you share a house with a person who is a prohibited person. So um, the, the, the decision of whether to allow someone to have a gun takes into account the danger that that would pose to other people. And so you have, but in, say you pass all the background checks, you have to go through a process of training um, and there's a 28-day waiting period minimum for the license. And then to buy the gun, you have to, you apply for a permit to purchase the gun. You identify the gun you want to buy. You, that's the, and that gun has to be suitable for the type of license that you've applied for. If you, you have to prove your reason. So if you say you want a gun to hunt rabbits, then the, then if you're approved, it'll be to buy a gun that is suitable for hunting rabbits. It won't, you won't be able to buy a gun that's suitable for hunting elephants. And so and that per permit to purchase process begins the process of registration so that by the time you take possession of the gun, it's, it's, it's clearly recorded as, as you're going to be the owner of that gun so that you're responsible for what happens. So those are the main things. And 
and the type and an important thing that changed after the Port Arthur massacre was you're not able to buy a semi-automatic rifle or shotgun except in a very narrow category of people, basically um, weapons that can shoot uh, lots of bullets in uh, or in short succession are not allowed in the in this for civilian ownership anymore. I, I want to go to our voice mailbox. This is a message we got from someone in Michigan. Hi, my name is Aaron Taylor, calling from St. Joseph, Michigan. Uh, having you know been in 32 countries and studied in seven, specifically uh, one of those countries being Australia, where they had the Port Arthur massacre back in I believe it was 1996, uh, where a guy took an assault rifle to a park and decided to mow down quite a few people. Um, it didn't take Australians long at all to band together and realize that these sort of weapons have no place in a functioning and progressive society. I feel like we could do the same thing here in the United States. I say we keep the handguns and shotguns and rifles for for hunting and for protection purposes, but but assault weapons, they belong on battlefields and have no, absolutely no purpose being in the hands of a, of a civilian or in the public hands. Professor Jouet, do you agree with Aaron? Do you think that's something that could happen here in the U.S.? At this stage, we have to see how the situation will unfold, but the Republican Party has shown a little sign of being amenable to reforms uh, that would uh, ban or further regulate assault uh, rifles. But if we take a longer look uh, at history, we see that uh, the very strong support for the right to bear arms as a fundamental aspect of um, American or conservative identity nowadays has not always existed. So this suggests that there may be a paradigm shift uh, sooner or later, and that reforms will then be possible. Professor Jue, there are two big differences our listeners point out when it comes to shootings in the U.S. versus shootings in other countries. One is the Second Amendment to our Constitution, and the other is the existence of the National Rifle Association. A member of our text club wrote, I want to know if other countries have anything in their constitutions that guarantee the right to own guns. In other words, what is the difference between those countries in the U.S. where we cannot get ourselves together enough to accomplish a single thing on gun regulations, even when the majority of the country supports some measures, and even when many peoples of the Second Amendment argument rests on misreading the amendment itself. So, Professor, how does our Constitution, particularly the Second Amendment, compare to the principles that other Western democracies live by? It's very atypical by international standards, but one place to start is to think about the fact that the Second Amendment is ambiguous, and historians and legal scholars have had different interpretations of its meaning. It's only in uh, recent years that it's gravitated toward the situation that we have today, where it's increasingly uh, interpreted as uh, conferring an unbridled individual right uh, to bear arm, uh, disconnected from a uh, well-regulated militia such as a uh, National Guard. And another uh, important consideration uh, to uh, follow up on what uh, Rebecca said for Australia is that compared to other Western democracies, the United States stands out due to the influence of lobbying, uh, moneyed interests over all areas of the government, including guns. And that's also key in uh, promoting particular interpretations of um, the Constitution. Rebecca, briefly, when it comes to the gun lobby, are there groups in other countries that have had as much influence as the NRA has had in the U.S.? Well, the gun lobby is operates in, in many, well, a lot of countries has an active gun lobby, although they don't receive as much 
publicity as the NRA. And they have been surprisingly um, effective. I mean, they prevented Australia from changing its laws for many years. And, uh, and certainly, and in Latin America, for example, where I'm in Guatemala, the gun lobby has prevented a lot of loopholes from being closed. But um, certainly, it, it, I would say, I'd think we'd all have to say that the US, the gun lobby in the US is the most effective gun lobby in the world. Here's another message we got from our tax club. How can other countries respond so quickly, for example, banning assault weapons after a mass shooting? Is it simply that the Second Amendment stands in our way, or is it a difference in national character? Is gun culture just too embedded into the American character? Professor Ujue, how would you respond to that question? The United States is a far more difficult country to govern than other Western democracies due to features of its constitutional system, which is extremely decentralized. Uh, We essentially have 51 governments, uh, the federal government plus uh, 50 states, and uh, each state has different uh, regulations on firearms. Technically, there could be uh, national standards that would uh, go beyond uh, what uh, they provide now in terms of uh, gun control. But it's very difficult to enact reforms uh, at uh, the federal level. In the United States, uh, we have uh, two co-equal um, chambers um, uh, of, uh, of Congress that can cancel uh, each other out. You also have the 60-vote uh, filibuster requirement uh, in uh, the Senate, plus uh, a Supreme Court that is uh, very powerful compared to constitutional courts in other Western democracies, plus a president that is also more powerful than many executive uh, figures uh, in other nations. So for any area of law, not simply uh, gun control, it's extremely difficult to enact uh, national reforms in the United States. We see that as a feature of other debates like health care, like financial reform, like criminal justice reform, the country being so decentralized and there being so many different checks and balances and beyond, it makes it very difficult to uh, follow through quickly on any reform proposals, unlike countries like uh, Australia or Canada, where it's generally easier. We're discussing how other countries respond to mass shootings. We'll be back with more in just a moment. And remember to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our conversation with these messages from you. Hi, my name's Louise and I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My husband and I are originally from Australia and we've lived in the U.S. for 14 years. Uh, We love living here and we feel very welcome, but we also miss the freedom from fear that we experienced living in Australia before we moved here. Um, In Australia, we don't think about the possibility of being murdered, going about our daily lives, whether it's in the supermarket or in a movie theater or being in a college or school. And it's perplexing that uh, gun ownership is held up as a symbolic of freedom. But we wonder how free a society truly is where adults are so scared to send their children to school and where cutting someone off in traffic could become deadly. Louise, thanks for that message. Professor Jue, following the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas last month, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced he wants new gun safety measures for Canada. What gun safety measures does Canada already have, and how did those come about? Gun control in Canada is significantly 
uh, more important than in the United States. Uh, it's harder to purchase a handgun. One has to go through a more thorough background check process that can last uh, several weeks or months. Moreover, there's a requirement that one take uh, a, tra a training uh, course on uh, how to handle uh, firearms uh, safely, and one uh, cannot uh, have the right to uh, purchase a handgun without passing uh, that course. And also, once one has uh, a gun, there are regulations on where one can take that gun. Uh, typically, it's uh, to be stored uh, safely at home when it's not allowed to take it uh, everywhere uh, one uh, pleases. And um, in uh, Canada, at present, there's a debate over reform uh, proposed by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, namely a freeze on purchasing or trading handguns and a mandatory buyback program for assault uh, rifles. And it's important to note that it's faced a measure of pushback in Canada. There's a relatively powerful gun rights movement in Canada that um, has uh, taken umbrage at uh, some of the uh, debates and how they've been framed. And that's one place to think about this is that um, the debate in Canada starts from uh, a position where there's far more gun control in place uh, than uh, in the uh, United States. But there's been a rise uh, in uh, the gun-related homicide rate uh, in Canada in recent years, and the number of uh, tragic mass shootings that have garnered a lot of attention. In 2020, in Nova Scotia, a man went on a rampage, rampage and killed 22 victims. In 2017, in Quebec City, a man killed six victims at a mosque, and he was motivated by xenophobia and nativism. And in 1989, at the Polytechnique School in Montreal, a man murdered 14 women, accusing them of being feminists. So Canada has faced a series of mass shootings that have garnered a lot of attention, even though it's not on the same scale as in the United States. And it's also important to take into account that the news cycle in Canada and the uh, political debate is uh, quite influenced by what unfolds in the United States. So with the tragedies in Uvalde and in Buffalo, uh, such mass shootings also played a role in uh, providing momentum for Prime Minister Trudeau uh, to push for stronger gun control. We asked our tax club for questions about international gun regulations, and we got a lot of questions about buybacks. One person asked, how did other countries enforce gun buybacks? And another asked, was there any violent pushback when certain guns were banned or confiscated? Sadly, I can't imagine there not being serious violence here if we tried to ban or confiscate anything. Rebecca, take the first question for me. In Australia, how did gun buybacks work? A really important point about gun buybacks anywhere is they only work if you also change the law so that they to cut off the supply of the guns that you're trying to get rid of. Sometimes there are gun buybacks, especially in like American cities, they might say, you know, providing 
movie tickets or something in return for guns. And people do hand in guns, but it's kind of like you need to turn off the tap as well as mopping the floor. And so a really important thing in Australia was that the, that the, the law was changed so you couldn't buy the guns that were being bought back anymore. And so um, it was uh, that the, there was... A, we didn't know how many how semi-automatics there were in Australia because we didn't have gun registration in most states. And so we, did, we just didn't know. But um, the thing was that the, the government worked out with the, with the gun dealers and the police a long list of prices for every model. There was a new price and a used price and this and that. And, uh, you, uh, and people got... Basically, it was like the value of the gun plus a little bit extra. And also, uh, we bought back accessories. We bought back the stocks that all the dealers had because the dealers said, well, I'm going to be terribly disadvantaged here. So all those stocks were bought back. And um, the, in different states, it ran differently, but sometimes there were some mobile units that went round to country towns, for example, um, and was run by the police. And in most places, immediately that people handed in their gun, it was damaged on the spot, like with a hydraulic press. So that the, because one concern that gun owners had was, I don't want to hand in my gun and then find that, you know, somewhere in the corrupt police, they've stolen, they've, you know, someone else has, has, has bought it. If it's gone, if I'm handing it in, I want it to be destroyed. And so they did do that. The guns were melted down um, and, um, and that was about oh, 650,000 guns in the first initial, about one year of the buyback. There were some extensions later on which brought it up to about a million. And in America, maybe that wouldn't be that many guns, but considering at the time in Australia, 650,000 guns was about one-fifth to one-sixth of all the guns that there were in the country. And, and remembering the buyback only applied to semi-automatics. And basically, if you didn't hand it in, you were then going to be an illegal possession. And it was also, it was illegal to have it. It was illegal. You couldn't get it repaired. You couldn't, I mean, basically, the if you're wanting to do something about a type of weapon, you have to look at all the different types, of, all the different ways that that weapon manifests. So those guns, if you, if you held on to them, then you'd be in violation of the law. But I want to get to the other question that was asked, which was whether there was any violent pushback when these new laws went into place. Well, there were certainly threats of violence, that which only when, I mean, when there's threats of violence um, by people wanting to say we need to resist the gun law with violence or resist the government with violence, it only really highlights the importance of, uh, of looking carefully at who's allowed to have guns. And the gun lobby was... Um, urging people not to comply. They were issuing like a kind of a, a kit that I think was called like a Liberty Kit or something. It was like a PVC plastic pipe um, that with, a, with uh, stoppers on the ends and an oil cloth that you could wrap your gun in and they said, bury your semi-automatic in the backyard for when the revolution comes. But there, was no, there were no actual incidents of violence and... Um, and it was, and in the end, it's based on the research that was constantly done, of course. It seems that that something something like three quarters, maybe 80% of people who owned these weapons did hand them in, and uh, there certainly has been the, um, the, the this, we certainly have seen the benefits in terms of the impact. So there was objection, but there wasn't violence. And Rebecca, in, in the final minute we have here, how does the fact that the U.S. has so many guns impact other countries, even if those countries have tighter restrictions? 
Yes, if the U.S. is the biggest exporter, both legally and illegally, of guns. And, so, and that's one reason why the rest of the world has a lot of interest in what happens in the U.S. is because gun traffickers, of course, buy guns easily in the U.S. and then send them to other countries, and especially to Latin America and the Caribbean. So uh, it's the, the most commonly produced guns in the U.S. are also the most commonly used in crime in Latin America, the most commonly seized. And so... Uh, we in other countries have a real interest in um, in in the, in the U.S. reducing that. And uh, actually, a point that I want to try to get in there also, even though there's so many guns in the U.S. already, we know that in general in crime, criminals prefer newer guns. So that if there was some kind of a change now, the uh, the the if we were able to slow the number of guns flowing into the Amer- into American society, it would reduce the availability and the attractiveness of those guns for criminals. So we should be able to see a difference. And obviously for us in other countries, we really hope so. That's Rebecca Peters. She helped lead Australia's gun law reform efforts. She's also the former director of the International Action Network on Small Arms, which works to combat gun violence globally. Also with us, Professor Mugambe Jouet. He's a law professor at McGill University in Montreal and author of Exceptional America, What Divides Americans from the World and from Each Other. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. NPR is conducting its annual survey to better understand how listeners like you spend time with podcasts. You can help us out by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. We really appreciate your help. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.